0: Thank you for joining us for the study of God's word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through his word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Ezekiel. In the Old Testament, as we call it, the Hebrew Scriptures. And Last week, some of you were here, and you know, if memory serves you well, that we talked about the characteristics of false teachers and how the Bible is very clear. There will be false teachers throughout the age of the church, throughout all of the history of the church of Jesus Christ. There will be those who come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And this is indication, quite frankly, of how not only is God the same yesterday, today, and forever, but the devil is too. He is very predictable. A careful study of the Bible will yield certain characteristics of the devil. And he has a a habit of repeating himself. We're going to see that today in a little different light. We saw there were six characteristics found in 2 Peter 2, verses 1 through 3. You may recall them. One of the characteristics of false teachers is they're always looking for some new idea. I was reading last week in Acts chapter 17 about the visitation that Paul made to Athens and he went to Mars Hill. It was a place where people from all over the Mediterranean world who were thinkers, philosophers, would go and they would raise questions and they, according to what Luke wrote, they were hearing and telling new things, none of which had any weight to them. So false teachers are always advocating something new, trying to add to the Word of God. That's a defining characteristic of a false teacher. Today, yesterday, and until Jesus Christ comes again. Secondly, we saw how they did not acknowledge Jesus as their master. The scripture says they denied the master who bought them. They marginalized Jesus at least in what they teach. But even more, they completely eliminate him. And if they do, don't do one of the other of those things, what they do is they just teach partially about the person of Jesus Christ. They do not talk about how in him dwells the fullness of God in bodily form, the important, I think the most important of all the doctrines of our faith is the incarnation of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Were it not so, then we would never have had one who could die on the cross for our sin and be raised for the dead from the dead for our justification. A third characteristic of false teachers we saw last week is that they usually draw massive numbers of people because their newfangled teaching is so designed to hook people and to appeal to the flesh in people. On the heels of that, I would say that they are sensual people. They have lust in their eyes. They find ways to worm their way into the hearts and homes of widows and also people who are single females, and really seduce them. They also are greedy. This is another truth that applies to false teachers. They're greedy for money. You see it in their lifestyle. You see it in their message. This is another factor. And then the flip side of that could be a sixth characteristic is that they manipulate the sheep of Christ. They fleece them, as we would say. They had their forerunners in the Old Testament. And today, we're going to take the characteristics of these forerunners given to us in Ezekiel 34, these false shepherds, we will call them, false pastors, false leaders of Israel, and we're gonna see positive characteristics of true teachers. How can we know who a true teacher is Let's read Ezekiel 34, beginning with verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Woe shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with wool. You slaughter the The fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly you have not strengthened. The diseased you have not healed. The broken you have not bound. The scattered you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost. But with force and with severity you have dominated them. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd and they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered My flock wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. My flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth, and there was no one to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God. Surely because my flock has become a prey, my flock has even become food for all the beasts of the field for lack of a shepherd. And my shepherds did not search for my flock, but rather the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore you shepherds hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I'm against the shepherds, and I will demand my sheep from them and make them cease from feeding sheep. So the shepherds will not feed themselves anymore. That'll be a glorious day, by the way. But I will deliver my flock from their mouth so that they will not be food for them. them, of course, has as its antecedent these false shepherds, these ravenous wolves. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the streams and in all the inhabited places of the land. I will feed them in a good pasture and their grazing ground will be on the mountain heights of Israel. There they will lie down on good grazing ground and feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock and I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken and strengthen the sick, but the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with justice and judgment. Wow. You know what he's talking about obviously here? How's he going to come? I'm projecting myself back to the days of Ezekiel in the 6th century B.C. What was he foreseeing? This is a messianic promise fulfilled in the person of Jesus. As we read earlier from John chapter 10, beginning with verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. He says it twice about himself. I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus is the epitome of what a true shepherd is. And Jesus... You may recall when he was with his men, the story is recorded by John in the 13th chapter of his gospel. And they were in the upper room and they were getting ready to observe what we now know as the institution of the Lord's Supper. And Jesus said many things to them, but he said, you call me Lord and teacher and you are right, I am. And notice the way he reverses what they had said. I am your teacher and I am your lord. Jesus is our primary teacher. He teaches us through the word of God. We have no further to look than to the person of Jesus Christ for understanding what a good shepherd is. He describes himself in this way, the good shepherd feeds the flock, and Jesus fed them the word of God. As Matthew concludes the Sermon on the Mount. He gives a postscript. He gives his own description of the response of the people who heard that beautiful teaching of Christ designed for his followers, his disciples, not just the 12, but all who would consider themselves followers of Jesus. Do you remember what he said? He said the people were in awe of what he said. Because unlike all their scribes, he taught with authority. Do you know why Jesus Christ taught with authority? Of course, he is God become man. But in his humanity, he submitted himself to the Father. He did not say anything without hearing it from the Father. Do you understand that we today have that same privilege? Not all of us are pastors, obviously, but each one of us who knows Jesus Christ is part of a throng of people who are described as a kingdom of priests. I just read about it this morning in Exodus 19, how God said that about Israel, that ragtag bunch of a million plus men over the age of 20 and all who accompanied them. He called them a kingdom of priests. There was nothing that would recommend that they were such people. And then Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, calls them a royal priesthood, combining the offices of king and priest in us, not just those who are pastors in the church, not those who have speaking gifts. In all of us, we who know Jesus Christ are inhabited by the Holy Spirit of God, and we belong to God. And God has given us the Spirit of God who gave us the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit of God interprets the Scriptures to us. Aren't you glad that we have the Holy Spirit living in us and He has given us the Bible? And we are able to understand things that the angels longed to understand. And the prophets who wrote many of the things which are at our access, those people long to know and do and think about the things that we think and know. What a wonderful gospel we have. Let's look at some of the characteristics of a true teacher in addition to the fact that a true teacher feeds The flock of God shares the Word of God with others. Verse 4 yields the answer to the question, what are the characteristics of true teachers in addition to the fact that they feed the flock of God rather than fleece it? Verse 4 of Ezekiel 34 says, Those who are sickly you have not strengthened. Here's the first thing. True teachers... True shepherds are people who strengthen the weak. Psalm 119, verse 28, the psalmist says, My soul weeps because of grief. And then the psalmist very wisely follows that thought up, that confession of his own need, his own weaknesses. He says, strengthen me according to your word, a true pastor, a true shepherd, a true teacher. We who, like those who are in the role of pastor teachers in the church, we also are to follow Jesus' example. We're to imitate Paul, Paul said, as he imitates Christ. And in that same upper experience, upper room experience that I mentioned just a few moments ago, He said, I have left an example for you that you should follow. And he was talking about serving one another, but it would be broader than that. Anything that Jesus gave as example by the way in which he lived and the things which he taught, we too have that charge in our lives. And we too can strengthen the weak among us. In 1 Thessalonians 5.14, in the New King James Version, among the exhortations that are contained in that verse about how we are to relate to each other in the body of Christ, there is one which says, Uphold the weak. We are to hold our brothers and sisters in Christ whose faith may be flagging, people who are struggling due to all kinds of exigencies that this life brings into their existence. We are to reach out to them and minister. To them. When we awaken in the morning, we must remember that the Lord has awakened us to listen to Him. And the Lord God has given us the tongues of disciples because we can come and be trained by Him from the scripture. And He sustains us who are weary sometimes. Do you ever get weary in your walk with the Lord? My guess is that there's more than a handful of people today who have experienced some weariness since we were together last week. Do you ever get weary, heavy-hearted? Well, the Word of God tells us that we are to encourage the faint of heart in the book of 1 Thessalonians 5.14 again. And we have the Word of God to do that. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy-laden, and you shall find rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. The word concept of a yoke is the concept of submit. Submit yourselves to me. And then learn from me. The word learn in the original language is the verb from which the word disciple comes in the original language. They're sister words. If we could read Greek, we would see how those are connected to one another. We are people who can come to Jesus, the good shepherd, the chief shepherd, the great shepherd, these terms that are used to describe his pastoring us. We can come to him. All of us have that access to him through Jesus and we can come to him and he will encourage us. Writing to Timothy, his son in the faith. The Apostle Paul said, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with great patience and instruction. We are to exhort. That word exhort is a word which has several shades of meaning, but the two primary ideas represented in that word, one is the idea of encourage. Don't we need to encourage each other? The Bible says to all believers, not just to a select group of believers, listen carefully what the Word of God says to us. Encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that your heart may not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Look around you. In this room, many of you know others in this room. If not, we hope you will make it your aim to get to know more people but those whom you know, you can do this. You can encourage them how frequently? Daily. Why do we need it daily? It's because we are under attack from the enemy. We are barraged with flaming arrows that are designed to distract us from our walk with the Lord. And we can encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ and we go to the word of God if we're going to have effective words of encouragement. In Romans 15, 4, the Bible says, whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scripture, we might have hope. Catch that phrase, the encouragement of the scripture. The Bible literally oozes with encouragement. That's why we need to be men and women of the word of God. We need to live in it. We need to eat it. We need to ingest it and digest it and let it become part of who we are so that we are men and women who always have an answer for those who are in need of strengthening. We need to understand that those who are true teachers slash pastors, I'll even mention this, men and women who know that they're part of a royal priesthood. All of us. There is no priesthood except the royal priesthood of God. We're all priests to one another. Here's the second thing the passage teaches us that we are to heal the wounded. Let's go back to chapter 34 of Ezekiel. And let's look at the second thing that God speaks through this prophet about False shepherds. The broken you have not bound up. So let's stop here. And I skipped one. The disease you have not healed. Uh, I'm not a medical doctor. I pray for people's healing. I pray for people who need other kinds of things that they can't supply for themselves. We are to do that. Sometimes we see people heal. The elders were called upon three weeks ago. We know the Bible says in the book of James chapter five, if any of you sit, sit, call upon the elders and let them anoint you with oil and the prayer of faith, if it's prayed, God will answer it. We had a woman in our church, a dear sister in Christ, and she came to us on crutches the last time I had seen her, it was not too long ago, she was walking without the aid of any kind of crutch or walk or anything like that. And she said, I have had an MRI on my knee and there's grave concern that I may have a tumor that's malignant between my femur and my kneecap. And would you pray for me? Well... We took that seriously. We lay hands on her. We anointed her with oil. We prayed, and this morning we received report. She does have a tumor. The tumor has not gone away, but it's not malignant. It's a benign tumor. Now, could it have been malignant before? We don't know, but we were just being obedient to the Lord and she was too, coming to the elders for prayer. Praise the Lord. For men and women in our church, many of whom are in our room, doctors who've been trained and other medical personnel in treating people with physical illnesses, God gives them a talent for helping people who are sick or wounded, healing. But you know, there are many more people. I think there's a larger number of people, actually, in the church who are wounded. and It's not a physical wound. It's an emotional wound, a spiritual wound. And the good news is that Jesus, in his inaugural message in his public ministry, in his own home church, if you will, the synagogue in Nazareth, said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has sent me to proclaim release to the cap- captives. And he has sent me to proclaim Deliverance for the oppressed. Many people are oppressed. You may be oppressed today in your heart because of some relational issue in your life. Maybe it's some illness, some loss that you have suffered. It could take many, many forms. People who are down. Did you know that the Apostle Paul got depressed. When that dawned on me, I don't know how many years ago it was, but I had a hard time relating to Paul. He just seemed too gung-ho and too perfect for me. I kind of like John a lot better. He's sort of a soft kind of guy. He was not really soft, but that was my interpretation of him. None of the Apostles was soft. All but John himself died a martyr's death But then I saw how he talked about how he was under great pressure far beyond his ability to endure. Indeed, in his heart, he felt the sentence of death. That's a statement of despondency. And then later, when he records how the man whom he had discipled, Titus, came to him, he said, we were comforted by this man who comforted us in effect in our depression. It happens to all of us who know Christ. My life, much of the time, is kind of like in the course of one day, up here and then down here. And then before long, I'm up again. Even the course of one day, my life is like an oscillating fan in that regard. Some days, not every day, thank God. But what we know is there are people who are wounded around us and they need encouragement, don't they? They need healing. Do you know one of the ways that we can heal them We can't do it. The Lord can heal them through us. Is for us, first of all, to make a connection with them. But secondly, without over-dramatizing anything, but let them know that we have been through difficulties. And the Lord has been faithful to deliver us from those difficulties. And he has healed us in the midst of our trouble. And to come to the conclusion, these people who understand this, just what I said. If you look at Hosea, hold your place here. Go to Hosea. It's just a few books back toward the New Testament from where we are. Hosea chapter six, verse one. This is what Hosea writes. Come, let us return to the Lord. The suggestion is clear. They had been away from the Lord, and they needed to repent. They needed to return to the Lord. And Hosea, on behalf of the Lord, is calling them, Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us, but He will heal us. Now look here. He he has wounded us, but He will bandage us. This is God. We don't like that kind of theology. But any theology that does not include this is bad theology. Because God, as our Father, the writer of Hebrews talks about this in the 12th chapter of Hebrews. He talks about how our Father, because He loves us and because we are His children, He disciplines us. Put whatever name you want on it. Wounding, the word afflicts is another word. All those words gathered together together Give a clear picture of the way our father, in his love, treats us because he knows we need discipline. If you don't love your kid, by the way, you don't care to discipline him or her. If you love her or him, you have disciplined or will discipline that child. Well, what I'm trying to get at at this point is that. God uses wounded healers, doesn't he? He does. He uses us. Jesus himself is the personification of the wounded healer. Jesus still bears the marks of the cross in his body. In his resurrection body, he showed his hands and his side, his feet to his apostles in others to whom he appeared. He showed it to them. And this morning, for the first time, I was thinking about a verse I quoted earlier, Colossians 2.9, and if it had dawned on me before, I had overlooked it because I was so caught up in the fact that in Christ, God's fullness dwells in bodily form. My whole idea was on the incarnation. But here's what I overlooked until this morning. Notice the tense of the verb. In him, God's fullness dwells in bodily form. Jesus was already ascended into heaven. But Jesus Christ still carries human flesh today. And when he returns, we will see the marks of his passion on the cross. Amazing. He wears, as I said last week, he wears his humanity as his greatest achievement because he had to become human in order to save us from our sin, to qualify him to be the one who could truly save us from our sin. A.W. Tozer, a great man of God, I can't remember which book he said it in, but it stuck with me immediately. He said, before God can use a person greatly, he must first hurt that person deeply. There's something that must happen in our lives to humble us before God can use us to the fullest. We're so full of ourselves, so full of pride. In the annals of Texas Baptist history, no name shines more brightly than the name of George Washington Truett. At the age of 31, in 1897, he was asked to come from a little country church near Waco to the booming metropolis of Dallas, Texas to become the pastor of the First Baptist Church. It was a heady assignment for a man so young. He was a gifted young man, When he was called to preach, it was by his home church, a country church, over near Waco, and they had a church business meeting, and the lead deacon in the church stood up, and he said, I recommend that George W. Truett be ordained for the gospel ministry. Pruitt couldn't believe it. He demurred, but he finally consented. But when he went to that church, He had such great gifts of communication, and he was a great pastor, preacher of the Word of God. He was an orthodox to the core. A year after he had begun his assignment there, he was invited by the chief of police, a member of his church. His name was J.C. Arnold, to go to Cleburne, Texas. Some of you have been to Cleburne on a bird hunt. They got on the Santa Fe train, 1898, no cars yet. They went down on that line, probably about an hour's trip, maybe a little more. They had their guns with them and they were looking forward to a good day of hunting. They joined their host, who was the sheriff of that county in which Cleburne was, and another man whose land they were going to hunt on They went out to hunt, and in a moment of relaxation, the gun, which was loaded, and the safety was not on, evidently, that George W. Truett had went off, and it shot his dear friend, police chief Arnold, in the leg. Quickly, he and the others applied a tourniquet to his leg, stopped the bleeding, They saw a doctor in Cleburne before they got back on the train to return to Dallas. The doctor checked it out. He said, You men did just the right thing. It looks like he's going to be fine. Get him home and then get him to a doctor tomorrow for further treatment. They got on the train. The bleeding did not begin. They got on the train. They took him to his home. The next morning, George W. Truett heard a knock on his door. It was a messenger. And the man said, I am sorry to report, Pastor Truett, but your friend died last night. It destroyed this man, George W. Truett. He went into a deep depression. He could not and would not talk to anyone. He was so grieved. He just said, I must resign the church. I could never preach again knowing that I have killed this man. Well, he didn't do it on purpose, maybe negligence, but not on purpose. And finally, as he grieved over this for weeks, he couldn't go to the pulpit to preach. He just stayed at his home, mostly in his room by himself. He prayed, he read the word, and then he heard in his heart these words to him. He said, do not be afraid, George. From now on, you are my man. Whose man had he been before? He'd been his own man. And so those who witnessed the transformation, the words of the sermons which he wrote and delivered were no different than they had been the year or so he had been preaching. No different But there was an impact. It was that which only could be explained by the Spirit of God taking control of a man because that man finally gave up on himself in order that he could be filled with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit would use him to convey the message of the gospel. Wounded healer. That word or that phrase was used by men now gone to be with the Lord in heaven, Henri Nouwen. And he wrote a book about the wounded healer and saying that the real useful people to the Lord are people who don't have it all together. They're people who have been broken in their lives. And they're people who have learned to yield to the Lord and they've learned how God's, Grace is sufficient for every one of us. And his power is not made perfect in our strength. To the contrary, his power is made strong in our weakness as we yield ourselves. It's so counterintuitive to us, isn't it? Isn't it? Men especially, it's like that. We, we are trained to be large and in charge. That's the way we are conditioned. But the Lord has to wound us and bind up our wounds so that we can be used by him. Here's the third and final characteristic of a true teacher as compared to a false teacher. Look again at Ezekiel 34. I'm going to read verse 4 again in its entirety. Those who are sickly, you have not strengthened. The diseased, you have not healed. The broken, you have not bound up. The scattered, you have not brought up. Nor have you sought for the loss. Those two things. All right. So a real teacher, true teacher rescues the wayward. I love that parable in Luke 15 that Jesus teaches to preface what we know probably is the most well-known and well-loved of all Jesus' parables. The parable of the prodigal son. But he begins by talking about a shepherd who comes home from a day of pasturing his sheep and he counts them up. They're only 99. He has 100 sheep and he counts again, still only 99. What does he do? He leaves the 99 and goes looking for the one. This echoes what Jesus said that we read a little earlier in John chapter 10. What does he say about his sheep? I know my sheep and my sheep know them. I hope you know. If you are a sheep of Christ, he knows you by name. He loves you. This is the God of the universe knows you and me by name. When I get lonely, I'm reminded of that. That he is with me. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I have no need to fear evil. Why? Because he's with me. He will never leave me nor forsake me. I believe that. That's not just some placebo that some preacher has given to me. It's a truth. And we know that. He knows us by name. He loves us. True teachers care about individuals. They're not interested in the crowd. They're interested in the individuals who make up the crowd. Now, the Lord likes crowds, but he prefers a smaller group. I hope you know that. Did you know that? That's why the first service is so precious to me. <laughs> Your smaller group. But Jesus he he took 12 men and he would not refuse to talk to large crowds. But he zeroed in on 12 men. And he zeroed in within those 12 on 3 men. And then in those three, he zeroed in on one. Jesus knows you by name. And when he lives in your life, you're interested in the individual. And that interest grows and grows the more you come to know the Lord. It's amazing. Jesus says about himself, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He's looking for the wayward, isn't he? Jesus also says in John 20 21 to us, He says, As the Father sent me, so send I you. He sends us into our respective worlds to reach out to individuals and to minister to individuals. It's been said, and accurately, that Jesus Christ sees the masses through the individual. He sees you and trains you and trains me to reach more people than we ever would in one life by pouring in to those he brings into our sphere. Turn now to James. Hold your place there. We'll be back one more time. Ezekiel. We'll go to James chapter 5. The last two verses of the epistle of James. I hope you know that the author of the book of James was James the brother of Jesus. The half-brother of Jesus. Verse 19 of chapter 5. My brothers... If any among you strays, that sounds like a sheep word, doesn't it? If any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save that sinner's soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Does that mean we can lose our salvation? I don't believe so. I would stake my eternal life on the fact that I have been born again, and what God has done cannot be reversed in that way. The Bible says the gifts and calling of God, and the calling is calling not to be a preacher, but to be a follower of Christ, to be a sheep of Christ, are irrevocable. They're irreversible. God has etched it in stone in the Word of God. And there are so many other places we could look. We don't have time for it. And notice to whom he addresses this. My brothers, if any among you, that would be among the sheep, strays from the truth and turns, the one who turns him back, reaches out to him, turns him away from the air of his ways. He saves his soul from death. Now go to 1 John. For further clarification, one of the basic principles of biblical interpretation is we interpret Scripture and light of Scripture. The theologians call it the analogy of faith. And in chapter 5 of 1 John, we're going to look at verse 16. It says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. So we know, we're not told what that sin is actually. And that's good, I think, because we begin to say this is a venial sin and this is a mortal sin like the Roman Catholic Church does. Sin is sin. Whatever kind of sin it is, it separates us from God. But when he talks about this, he goes on to say, there is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. We don't know what that sin is. But it's a sin probably it has to do with repeated turning of the ear away from the voice of God, through the Word of God, by the Spirit of God, and persisting in certain sin. Could be any kind of sin, but just a persistence in sin. Let me illustrate this in a very simple and maybe crude way. Let's say most of us are past the years of having small children at home. Most of us are empty nesters if we have children. Some still have children at home, but very few in the room have small children at home, maybe a handful. But let's say back in the day when my son Josh was going next door to play with a friend and the fence separated me from him and I'm out in the backyard working in the yard, doing something and all of a sudden I hear voices raising and I think I hear my sons raising louder than the other child's voice or children. I go over and I look over and sure enough, I was right and I say, Josh, you know better than to act like that. Behave son. And he takes the order, quietens down. So I go back over and resume what I was doing. And then a few minutes later, same thing, but the pitch is even higher. And I said, Josh Woods, if I have to come back again, I'm gonna take you home, boy. Do you understand? Yes, daddy, I understand. Things quieten down again. But finally, the same thing happens again. I Don't just lean over the fence. I go out the gate. I go into that backyard. I grab him by the arm and said, get yourself over here, son. I take him home. Why would I do that? Think about it. Why would your parent do that? Why did you do that to one of your children? Why? Number one, he was defaming the woods name. He was a bad reputationer. If you're such a word, for the woods. He was not a good emissary. Secondly, he was hurting the person that he was fussing with. And thir- thirdly, he was hurting himself, really. Now think about this in relationship to our Lord. Why would he take us home? We talked about Tony's going home. We talked about Rosie Cortez going home. Not everybody is taken out of here because of misbehavior. No, but there are some. And we have a responsibility when our brothers and sisters are wayward. Instead of saying, have you seen brother so-and-so? Have you ever said that? Have you talked to him lately? You know what we ought to say when people say that is, I haven't, have you called him? Have you gone to see him? Not to be snotty about it, but just say, have you? And the point is we're all responsible for each other in a sense, aren't we? If the Lord puts somebody on my heart, guess who should initiate contact with that person? Me, and the same for you. Do you know his phone number? Do you know where he lives? You can go find him and say, hey, I've been missing you. Have you missed some people the last year around here? What are you doing about it? Do you call them? And when you call them, do you say, we miss you? How are you doing? Can we pray for you? Is there anything we can do for you to care for you? We love you. It's not just for pastors to do that. It's for us, the body, to do that. We're to care for our brothers in Christ. And we, you'll never know. God will use you to bring some brother back from the brink of usefulness to God as the Bible says now let's go back to Ezekiel 34 last look at verse 4 look at the last part of verse 4 it says with force and with severity you have dominated them False shepherds dominated the sheep. The sheep who were weak, whom they should have strengthened. The sheep who were wounded, that they should have bound up. The sheep which were wayward, that they should have gone hunting for and bring back. They dominated them instead. This is a sure sign of a false teacher. A false teacher wants to lord it over the sheep of Christ. That is not characteristic of a true shepherd, true teacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, mind you, pastors are shepherds, not pet lambs. They have to lead. And they lead with humility, but they lead as they themselves follow the chief shepherd and the great shepherd. None of us does that perfectly. By far, none of us does it. We do it with humility, but we have to do it because God has charged us with this responsibility. We have a wonderful shepherd in Jesus, don't we? Praise the Lord for the Lord Jesus Christ. And he lives in us. He guides us, he equips us, and he gives us some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastor teachers who are given the responsibility to feed the flock of God. In 1 Peter 5, last thought from God's word. Peter writes to his fellow elders, interestingly, I thought he was the chief priest of the church. No, 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 no. He describes himself as a fellow elder with these other under shepherds of Christ. He says to them about the need for them to feed the flock of God that is in your care and don't do what you do for sordid gain, but willingly and don't lord it over. Don't dominate the flock, but set an example for them. True shepherds have as their goal to follow Jesus. And in so doing, set the example. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the teaching of it. Thank you for the illuminating of it by the Holy Spirit. And now we ask, Lord, as we rise from here and go our way, that we will go with a new resolve that we're not going to be indifferent to our brothers and sisters in Christ who are faint-hearted, not as mature, those who have been wounded and need healing, and those, Lord, who have become discouraged and been led astray by their own flesh and by the world and by the devil and go and retrieve them as men who have been called and women who have been called as those who are spiritual, to restore those who are off in a ditch somewhere with a spirit of gentleness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you.